Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and condition resources available online today. This episode's guest is Max Aeda of Juggernaut Training Systems. Max has spent the better part of 20 years in both the sport of weightlifting and powerlifting. Max draws his training methodology and knowledge from the many great coaches whom he has previously worked with, and these include Steve Goff from the United States, Ivan Ibejeev from Bulgaria, and Borsh Sheiko from Russia. Max has also produced over half a dozen senior national medalists in weightlifting, multiple all-time world record holders in powerlifting, and has worked with CrossFit regional and games-level competitors to develop strength and Olympic lifting technique. Max has also used his extensive knowledge of training and experience to create hybrid programs for athletes that wish to compete in both weightlifting and powerlifting or weightlifting and CrossFit simultaneously. On this episode, Max and I discussed many topics, including Max's background and his influences, the good and not so good things that Max sees within the physical preparation profession. Max gives a detailed description of the Bulgarian weightlifting system and also talks about his time being trained under the legendary Ivan Ibejeev. Max talks about his program design for Olympic lifting and how he individualizes his programs for his lifters. Max gets into an in-depth discussion on training volume and intensity over the course of a lifter's career. Max also talks about his technical models for teaching the lifts. Max talks about the release of his first book, which recently just came out, The Weightlifting Technique Triad. Max gives us his top resources, his thoughts on RPE for weightlifting, his thoughts on American weightlifting. We also discuss drugs in sport. Max also discusses the use of Olympic lift variations for athletes. And Max also discusses his hobbies outside of coaching and lifting. And finally, I asked Max the big question, and that was if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Max, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Max Ada, it's an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast. Uh, you're definitely someone I've been wanting to go on now for some time. And um, Just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, Max, uh, which I imagine won't be too many people, just fill us in on your background. Yeah, I'm an American weightlifting coach uh, based out of California. I've coached uh, several American record holders in weightlifting, uh, world record holders in powerlifting. I've been competing in weightlifting for about 20 years uh, and powerlifting for about seven. Um, I've got a pretty vast uh, array of coaches I've worked under, Boris Sheko, Ivan Abijayev, uh, several American coaches, Steve Goff. Um, and so, yeah. And you're currently at Juggernaut Training Systems with Chad yeah, in sorry. California? Currently at uh, Juggernaut Training Systems with Chad Smith. Chad Wesley Smith. Chad Wesley. Chad, Chad, the big, the big yeah. CWS. So you were, you were saying, to me, you were saying before you, you're do, you do all the Olympic lifts and things, and Chad does the cardsman. Yeah, Chad. I so currently at Juggernaut, I'm the one who runs all of the uh, online coaching, online. Uh, stuff for weightlifting. I create the programs for weightlifting, set up that stuff, uh, and then he does all the powerlifting programming, and we manage the groups and manage any individual clients and that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, we have we have some other coaches in there that, that work there, obviously, too. Marissa and Andy Wang and, and 
Anthony Pomponio and stuff. I love that name, Anthony Pomponio. He's a great guy. He's a great dude. Yeah. One of the best. So, uh, Max, one of the questions I ask all the guests that come on is, uh, in terms of influences, who's been the biggest influences on you, not only as a coach, but uh, also as a person? Uh, you know, I, I'd say my my first coach, uh, Steve Goff, was probably my first influence. You know, he taught me a lot about hard work and, and discipline and, and just the intangible aspects of this stuff where, you know, don't ever don't assume that you're above uh, the lowest job there is. You know, don't ever assume that because you're, you know, an analogy would be if you're the CEO of the company, you're still not above cleaning the bathrooms. Mm. Uh, I think if you take that mentality, uh, you know, with you through through any of this stuff, through life or through weightlifting or training, um, you, you're just going to go a lot further because you're, you're not limited by the sense of entitlement that, you know, Maybe some of the younger generation has. Um, yeah, he was huge. You know, there was there's a uh, Chad posted an article a while back, and it was actually one of those articles that that um, to me was one of the big reasons why I was you know interested in in um, Juggernaut a lot. And I, I've known Chad for years, but but this is one of the big reasons why I felt like it was uh, you know uh, a company worthwhile a worthwhile company for me to be part of. Um, and you know, it was, it was this, this thing that Chad posted from a coach he had, or he knew, um, with, you know, with the, the, sta- the statement was grateful for everything entitled to nothing. Um, and I think that embodied a lot of what golf, you know, my first coach talked about and how he lived his life. Um, you know, and that was just kind of the mantra of, of how I would, I would assume you should behave and lit and, carry yourself in this stuff that's great stuff so another question i like to ask all the guests that come on max is in terms of the whole physical preparation profession fitness industry etc what are the good and not so good things that you are currently seeing and with the not so good things is there any solutions you could offer up so Basically, what what, what 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 is it the what is it that you see that makes you proud to be a part of the profession, and then what are the things that doesn't make you so proud to be part of the profession, and with the stuff that's not making you proud, like what sort of solutions may you offer up there? So, in terms of in terms of the the industry itself, the things that are are the things I think that are are unfortunate uh, is that the um, the, the 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 industry has now created a a I want to say a vacuum, but it's created this like space for people to essentially, you know, everyone can make a dollar doing this, and the entry, the barrier for entry to get into becoming a coach or claiming a coach shifts to people that are going to spend more money and more time, you know, uh, advertising and managing their their business than people that are actually excellent at training or excellent at coaching and stuff. So I think the unfortunate side effect of that is, you know, you have every single person and their mother is now a coach or an online coach. Everybody offers it nine times out of 10. It's probably just them, you know, taking someone else's program and reselling it to you. Um, you know, so, so when you look at it, there's really not a lot. There's that, the biggest problem there is not that competition. It's 
the lack of uh, creativity and the lack of um, inspiration or, or ingenuity. Um, no one's forcing themselves. No one's being forced into a position where they have to create their own unique systems of training and think outside the box and, and do this because you know it's kind of readily available. There's a huge group of people that are just you know you might buy remote coaching from me and then turn around and sell the program to somebody else and that maybe you know you make a quick buck off it and you're just kind of not inspired to create or think outside the box or create your own stuff. Um, so that that's kind of an unfortunate aspect of that. I think it, it becomes very stagnant. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, from, from a standpoint of things that are, are, you know, the actual training aspect, those, those things people are doing, it's tough to say. I mean, people have been making all the mistakes for, <laughs> forever and, and doing all those things, you know, poorly. I actually feel like things have gotten quite a bit better in terms of, uh, you know, people not, not really, the information is getting better to be presented better. And that's that's kind of preventing a lot of the real ridiculous kind of things that used to go on. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, Max, uh, definitely a question that has to be asked to you because of your background has to center around the Bulgarian method. And maybe mm-hmm. could you get into the Bulgarian method and, you know, kind of, I suppose, dispel some of the myths for the listeners and discuss about well, what really went on with the Bulgarian method and maybe speak about Ivan Ivajayov and if you just want to maybe get into that because there's a lot sure. of uh, misperceptions I think of actually what went on so uh, maybe just get into as much detail as you want there because I, I like most people are fascinated with the concept of it but to be honest I, I always felt I was somebody who would never say well this is Bulgarian method because I was always like you know I, I don't really know what it is because I've never really heard from anyone who's done it I've just like heard all these second hand stories and people say it was this but you were kind of the first person like oh this person actually trained with Ivan Jayoff he actually seen it so like uh, yeah could you get into that yeah so you know I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of like I don't want to say there, there's a there's a lot of this this air of mystery around the Bulgarian method, and I think I think that kind of comes from there. There was a ton of success from from Bulgaria at a certain time in the history of weightlifting, and the methodology was very easy to understand, and it appeals to people in a sense that oh. Here's a really simple, it's simple but hard, so I can test my metal and and push myself, and if, I, if I'm able to be, you know, it's a proving ground, right? Um, and so people can look at it and say, okay, this is, uh, you know, this is a super simple method that's kind of like counterculture to what was going on at the time. And so there's a lot of this, like, I want to call it, uh, like, urban legend associated with the Bulgarian method um, and, and a lot of people look at it as a a like oh it's like this mysterious kind of thing you know what I mean um, so what what I think is what, what, what I experienced was was if you look at the Bulgarian method from from the eyes of somebody who has done uh, you know, who understands training on some level, who has an understanding of the scientific principles that govern training. 
um, you're going to end up looking at it and saying, okay, there's, there's really nothing particularly, um, you know, groundbreaking here. It, it violates some of the rules as do some programs and it adheres to some of the rules as do, you know, all successful programs. Um, you know, basically the Bulgarian method is essentially the exploitation of specificity and overload. If you train doing the most specific movements, you know, the, the snatch, clean and jerk, squat, you know, power versions, and you do them exclusively with, you know, as much overload as possible, as often as possible, then you'll get results. And and that's obvious, right? We kind of, you know, it's not, doesn't take a, a doesn't take a, a ton of thinking to, to kind of realize that's the case. What, what it was, was the application of the system in the time it was, you know, in the time and place at, in Bulgaria in the 1980s, um, it, you know, it worked very well. And then you had a tremendous amount of success in that era. Currently, the Bulgarian Weightlifting Federation has been decimated for the last, I mean, since they haven't even fielded a team since 2004, maybe. Um, you know, they've, they've just been destroyed, decimated by doping scandals and drug use. And, and we all know that everybody is now after seeing the Olympics, you know, the 50 positives. Um, but, but the point is that I think a better, a better term than the Bulgarian method would be the Bulgarian era. There was a period of time where they were super successful and they were great. Abhijayev applied some new thinking, much more just super extremism. You know, let's go super heavy. Let's go really often, uh, and and go from there, right? Um, it's not it's not to say that there's anything about the Bulgarian method that is or isn't you know workable or usable, but I think it's I won't say outdated, but it's it's not as it's not as applicable today, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and I've heard you guys. You know, speak about the Bulgarian method, like giving a critique and, and weighing the scientific principles, the, the the principles from the scientific principles of strength training book, and kind of saying, you know, when you look at through that lens, that uh, you can definitely see some conflicting things. And you bring up a great point there, in that like Bulgaria basically have produced nothing over the last, you know, as you said, since two thousand and four. So, so, um, it's it's definitely yeah. it's definitely an interesting thing. Could, could you discuss though, like your time with Ivan Jayalf when when you were training? I, yeah. I know I, I've seen a video, so, the video you've done on that, and I found it I found it very fascinating. And the story about the day you went in and you you were so shot that the, like it was a sixty kilo front squat, you were just like you couldn't even coordinate it, and then like it just like yeah, all that type of stuff. It was really fascinating to hear. Yeah, you know, uh, my time with him, uh, we live we all lived in a house together. And uh, we trained in the garage, and he, uh, you know, it was every day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is a maximum. You're the first, there, every so the structure is broken up like this. You do a morning workout and an evening workout, and then maybe a nighttime workout. And the morning workout would be, uh, you know, you do one exercise. So say you do uh, front squat. Then you take a 30-minute break, and then the next exercise is snatch. And then another 30-minute break, the next exercise is clean and jerk. So, you know, these workouts were taking like four hours, but there was a 30-minute break between each each exercise. So 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday is always the same structure. It's always uh, front squat to maximum, clean and jerk, or sorry, snatch, clean and jerk uh, as a power. So power snatch, power clean and jerk. Then uh, a break for lunch, a couple hour break, a nap, and then uh, snatch to maximum, clean and jerk to maximum, and then front squat to maximum. Sometimes you'd have an evening workout where you do another front squat and possibly a jerk or something or like a weakness, work on your weakness a little bit. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, the same structure uh, for all three days. You'd do front squat to maximum, then snatch, clean and jerk, and those would be about 10 kilos less than you did the day before. Then you'd come back in the evening and do the exact same thing, front squat, snatch, clean and jerk front squat again, uh, and maybe about 10, 5 to 10 kilos, you know, below what you did the day before. Really, everything was always single repetitions. Very, very rarely would anyone do more than one. Uh, you might do a double or something or a few doubles to warm up, but essentially all single repetitions uh, the entire time. So, yeah. Well, that that was that, that was Monday, like no too. Real vi- oh, go ahead. Sorry. That, so real, no, no real variation at all. No exercise variation. No variation in loading. Um, you know, the the intensity was the same. So nothing really changed a lot there. Uh, if, and if you were a young a younger lifter, like were you just thrown straight into that, or or, or like was? Well, I had, I had trained with Goff and Steve Goff, and I had done probably as much, if not more, training than that. Um, with golf, we didn't really, you know, it was always kind of playing around with stuff. So we would do basically the same structure, but with golf, we would do more front squatting. Um, we would front squat in between exercises, and we didn't take breaks. We would take a five or ten minute break rather than a twenty or thirty. So it'd be Monday, front squat, snatch to maximum, front squat again, clean and jerk to maximum, front squat again. Then in the afternoon, the same thing, um, and and we would do a little more volume here and there, just because, really, because we didn't know what else. You know, golf's golf's mentality was push as hard as you can. Um, so you know, there's it, it, that's not so much a methodology as much as just let's let's see if we can push today something. If you can't do a front squat, if you can't make a big weight, then we'll do something else. Um, but, and but we no, golf with with golf there. Were you all always doing singles, even in the squats, or did you did you do? Yeah, you know, here and there we would drop down and do like a a set of three or something or wow. five, but that was very rare and really more just like you're kind of like testing for the sake of you know, maybe say testing, but just kind of like screwing around if that makes sense. You yeah, know? yeah. And so a lot you, of these guys do that, you know. You see a lot of these European guys, a lot of these lifters, and they're doing stuff that everyone thinks is like a special exercise or there's something <laughs> different. It's just they're just messing around, just poking around, you know. Yeah. And uh, with um, so with the weekly structure, that that was like so was that just go back to those days again? Was it did you say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? What, what were the days? That was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Thursday, Saturday. Well, On Tuesday. Sunday with both coaches, it would be uh like a warm up. Like just lightweights, 
So on on the Monday, Wednesday, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday were the same, and then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday the same. So what what was the actual difference though between Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday workouts? Was it just that the weight was oh, lighter? It was about ten kilos lighter on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. That that was the only real difference. Yeah, I mean you oh, do yeah. you do the powers on Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, so they weren't as heavy. Yes, yes. But but the variation was almost zero. Fucking hell, and like. In terms of just like soft tissue health, joint health, like, did you guys do like any accessory work for that, like, or anything to get blood oh. flowing there? Wow. You know, I never, I never actually had a soft tissue injury the entire yeah, twelve yeah, years yeah. I squatted like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. and the part in the video where you said one day you went in and you were just wrecked hard. What, what, what was that? What happened that time? I remember you were saying it with a foot squat. <laughs> well, it wasn't just one day. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, uh, I mean. When I when I trained, uh, you know, shoot, uh, with, I mean, you know, you got to imagine after a week or two or a couple of weeks of squatting like that and and lifting like that, like you're gonna be, you're gonna be broken. You're gonna hurt. Everything's yeah, gonna be yeah. stiff. Um, and yeah, at some point there came a time where I, you know when I first got there, I was front squatting, you know, 500 pounds without an issue at all, and uh, I, by the time I, I don't know how many weeks into it, I was destroyed and I couldn't even do a 70 kilo front squat. I couldn't stand up with it. But, but then, you know, like a day later, um, I front squatted like, you know, maybe two thirty or something. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you, you know, there, I think. I think it seems like there's like something magical there, something going on that's like what what's happening. The reality is just that you know you're in a situation where your your body is overloaded. There's so much stress, there's so much of of so much stimulus, and if you just continue to apply it, eventually there's some kind of adaptation that takes place. There's not that doesn't mean it's the most beneficial adaptation for every lifter for what they need to become a great lifter, but at some point you're going to be able to tolerate that kind of training. You know, it's it's anyone can do that. Anyone can train like this. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that it's going to make everyone that does that training a good weightlifter. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So off the back off the back now of that question and that answer. Uh, if I was to pose the question to you, what is your current training philosophy or what are the current training principles that you utilize when designing, organizing, and managing the, the training um, well, of, of a weightlifter? You know, the for weightlifting, the biggest thing, the most important aspect of the, of the training is that the lifter is getting what they need to develop as a uh, – uh, to develop properly, mm. you know, they, they need, they need, if they have really weak legs, they need to have more squatting in the program. Yeah. If they have really, really strong legs and a weak back, they need to have more exercises for that. If, if the lifter has, you know, you, you can't, you can't create a system that's super universal. The, the Bulgarian system is very universal in that it's going to select certain types of lifters. Yes. Yes. Right. And if you start with that, you know, I, what that lifter is may not be an anatomical thing. That lifter may just be a, a psychological thing. You know, it's going to attract people that are, you know, that predisposed to success because they're the kind of person who just finds the way. Um, you know, it's I, it's funny because the reality is like weightlifters. You, no one at top of weightlifting is not a freak of some level of some kind, 
right? And so if you're a country like Bulgaria or Russia or China, you don't care about people that have no talent. And that sounds hard, but you don't. Like, why, why would you care about a guy who's not that explosive, who's a little bit uncoordinated, or, or maybe who's a little bit like he's not the leanest guy or, you know, like he doesn't have all of the pieces because it's just a waste of time because you know that in the end, everybody else is showing up to the competition with the most talented person they can possibly find, you know, and clearly loaded up on drugs and, and, you know, with the best coaching behind them, you know, everyone's bringing their best. So systems are designed, these systems and training systems are designed in a way to select those people and find those people and push them to the top. They're not designed to, these programs are not designed to take everybody from, you know, their best, you know, from, from wherever they are to the next level. Um, the younger systems for kids are, you know, they're designed to just be sound systems of training that, that produce, you know, uh, good weightlifters and select them. But these are, these, these are really much more simple. The stories I've been told, you know, are, are very different. They, they take kids at, you know, about 12, 13 years old. Day one is the day they start taking drugs. They push them through, you know, selection process after selection process, which is basically just train them super, super hard. And the ones that get better, they move on to the next group. And then they do the same thing again and again and again. Um, so the systems and the structures that I create for my lectures are always around individuals. You know, I can't just sit there and create a system of, you know, give me 15 athletes and I'll just grind them up and get the best one. I have to say, here's the one guy I've got or the three guys I've got. What does each person need to become a better lifter and how do we apply that to them? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so individual variation and differences play a huge role in that. Aside from that, the basic principles are always adhered to. You know, specificity is the biggest thing. They have to do some kind of snatch and clean and jerk. They have to do it with heavy weights. Overload, overload there has to be some kind of overload stimulus. They have to get progressively harder in training. The training has to get more and more difficult as they go. Um, and then, you know, fatigue has to be managed properly. They can't just train the same way. Um, you know, they can't train seven days a week to maximum and expect to make progress because there's no, you know, there's no, there's no time for, for managing the fatigue, right? But eventually they'll just start to crumble and start to become, uh, worse lifters. Right. Uh, and then all the other factors too, that are, that are much more minor, you know, uh, variation, you know, there's got some variety in the exercises, um, that kind of thing helps. Um, you know, there's, there's other things that come into play, you know, how much you change the loading, the undulation between workouts and this and that. But all that's basically just an offshoot of the other factors, the more, the more important variables, um, that we apply. So it's like one program I write for one lifter would look so different than for another lifter. Um, just because they have totally different needs, you know, and some people I do train in a more, the quote unquote Bulgarian fashion where, and have much more high intensity lifts, much much less variety, because they will benefit from that. Some lifters don't. I mean, so just in, yeah. then in, in in terms like uh, like again, all that makes perfect sense to, to me, and I'm sure many listeners would would uh, would be familiar with a lot of the concepts you touched on there. But in terms then of like a session structure, and then your weekly structure, and then your mesocycle structure. Uh, now again, I know that there's still gonna be some inter individual differences yeah. there. Um, 
just like so in terms of the session structure because i've spoken to greg ever before about this and again he said well it depends if someone needs more skill versus strength work what will go first before what goes first so, what doesn't go first but like do you typically yeah. still have some type of structure where you know right our olympic lift will be first then it'll be like some sort of movement to correct a deficit and then they're squatting or uh yeah you know i don't i generally the structure will look like we'll use the the primary exercise that they're gonna use to you know whatever you do first in training session is probably gonna have the biggest impact because you're psychologically devoting the most energy to that yeah um that doesn't mean that because you squat at the end of the workout, you're not going to get better at squatting. Yeah. So the workout structure is pretty standard. It's it's you know the the first the first thing they do is some kind of skill work, um, which is really just a warm up. Um, the second exercise is going to be whatever whatever main movement they have that day. If it's you know a, a variation of the snatch clean and jerk to help develop whatever aspect of their technique is falling apart or they need work on. Uh, and then from there they do, you know, the extra, the, the strength exercises and the slower movements and then, you know, any kind of GPP or general stuff. You can always change that. You know, you can do jumping and bounding exercises first. You can do strength exercises first. Yeah. Um, you can really do any combination of that. Uh, it's all, it's all a matter of, of what, you know what's what's the most necessary component for that person to train. Somebody who's very very slow, who is not explosive, is going to be better suited doing less squatting, less pulling because they're going to get slower doing some of that, and they would be better suited with higher intensity lifts and and exercises that focus on the speed aspects. Somebody who's very very weak, who has good technique and is very efficient. Um, you know, they, they need to spend most of their time on training to become physically stronger. The mesocycle, the, the macrocycle, the, the, the microcycle, those things are all going to be determined by, you know, what, what phase of training they're in. You know, do we, do we have a phasic structure? If we have a phasic structure, what time is that in relation to their competition? And then what do they need to do there, right? So somebody who's really advanced, who's not very, like, a good example would be like Colin Burns, right? Colin Burns came to me, and he was very, he was very advanced. He had, he, so in, in training, I'll kind of give a little back, back, back thing here. Uh, there's, the way I look at things, there's, there's essentially two main periods of training time for every lifter. Uh, and this, this is like over a career. The initial period, which is a development of the total training volume, so this this kind of building period that takes place, maybe let's let's say like the first two to five years, maybe as much as six or seven years of them increasing the training load, so doing more and more and more volume, building and building and building to the point where they're doing their training at the highest you know, level of volume they're going to do. So when you first come in the gym, you know, you're going to train two or three days a week, four days a week. By the time you're five days, five years in or three years in, you're, you're basically at, you know, training the most you're going to train for some people that's six days a week or seven days a week doing hundreds of lifts a week for some that's less or more. Makes sense. Yeah. That, that initial period, it's main focus. It's main function is to both, 
obviously bring the or the, the lifter up to the standard of training volume they need to do, but at the same time, it, it puts them in a position where they become technically sound. So their technique solidifies and they become basically as efficient as they're going to get as a lifter, right? So I don't know if you have a copy of the book I wrote, but, but you basically have, you know, efficiency is going to be determined by how high you pull the bar relative to your own height and, and, Basically, once you get to 100% of that efficiency, you're not going to improve much beyond that technically. You can improve your coordination and you become a better lifter, but your, your technique, your efficiency can't get any better. So that initial period of time happens. All this volume is accumulated. The lifter has a, sta- a sort of consistent standardized structure to the amount of training they do. Their efficiency is, is at the top. It doesn't mean that they're as strong as they can be. So the second period of training that takes place after this initial one where they, they've developed this big volume is an intensification period that, that basically they are trying to maintain the volume or slightly decrease the total training they do, and they, they continue to do more and more intense loading. That means like on an average, the weights they're training with get heavier and heavier and heavier, and the exercises they do become less and less uh, distant from the competitive exercise. So basically you can look at it in that sense where I, if I have a lifter like Colin Burns who came to me, he had basically had this first period of lots of high volume training, a ton of exercises, uh, and, and a, a you know, large base of training from there, the training becomes mostly focused on intensifying the load. So more, and in his case, He's very weak uh, physically, so his his squats were not strong. His legs were not strong. He was unstable overhead. Those things were what we intensified, and that's what we started to push and develop those those aspects of his, his training. You know, he's still in that period, obviously, so he'll he'll continue to intensify that, I assume, and and get you know more results as you progress through your training. You should get more and more specific and more and more. Uh, focused and, and do basically, you know, only snatch and clean and jerk with maximum weights at some point. So that basic structure is always followed. This this accumulation and this intensification, it it follows the course of a large a whole career. So early in your career, those first several years are all about developing and accumulating the training volume. The second you know half of that period is determined by, yeah, or is is sort of. Uh, not determined, but uh, signified by a, a intensification of the training load. So that you know where where people are relative to that that distinction, you know, are they efficient or are they inefficient? Do they lift weights with the maximum level of efficiency and consistency, or are they still in the learning phase and the accumulation phase? Make sense. Yeah, that's absolutely like makes total sense to me. So that that's on as you said, that's on a, a macro scale in terms of career, and also on more of a well, I won't say micro because that's the week because people associate with week, but a a mesocycle uh, sort of uh, scale yeah. as well. In, in terms then of your of your macro, did and again I, I know like this could obviously be individual to the lifter, but would sure. you be more of a proponent of like you know 
high days alternate with lower days in terms of like i mean high day in terms of more stress in the nervous system versus maybe a, a lighter day in the nervous system so it could be more of a heavy day on monday wednesday friday and more velocity based day on the tuesday Thursday, saturday i've seen that model and are you yeah would you would you be more of a proponent of training snatch and clean on every single day or do you like to alternate between do you like to have a, a, a more snatch emphasis day a more clean and jerk emphasis day or so depend again totally depending on the lifter but okay. I, I can i can kind of speak to that one 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 there's always trade-offs right snatch and clean and jerk together is more specific and will develop the the you know specific adaptations you need for competition so it has to be done close to competition the further from competition you get, the more you have room to play with. Early in the training cycle, in that accumulation phase, or in that uh, you know hypertrophy block or general block, a lot of names for it. But early in the training cycle, excuse me, separating snatch and clean and jerk to different days is beneficial for beginners and advanced lifters. In that, for beginners, they can focus on the coordination of one exercise for the whole day. Yeah. Everything you do is snatch based. Right, you might do like a muscle clean or a power clean, but that in of itself is not uh, vastly different than than a snatch. And it's not really gonna. It's not like you're doing a, the complete clean and jerk or vice versa. So the whole snatch. So the benefit there is, is the ability to focus on the technique more, the ability to coordinate the movements of the technique more, and and emphasize that for the advanced lifter. The unidirectional loading like that is beneficial in that you can increase the uh, training resources devoted to the lift and get uh, a bigger response, a bigger uh, stimulus from doing that. If, you ha- if you're only able to do, let's say, 100 lifts in a day, which is probably way too many, let's just say you're going to do 50 lifts in a day, if 25 of them are snatched, 25 of them are clean and jerk based, you're, you're getting basically half of that volume for that. Makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. For the advanced the advanced lifter can devote entirety of their training day and energy to one exercise. Similar to the beginner, but for different reasons, right? They can do much more um, than the beginner could do, whereas the beginner is going to get more out of the coordination aspect, the skill aspect. Uh, as you get closer to the competition, you have to start doing them both together, and that actually becomes conducive because as you get closer to competition, you're going to do less volume overall. And it's much easier to tolerate, you know, you're not going to do humongous workloads that the weeks leading up to the meet, you're going to do very, very intense workloads that are specific. Um, but, but again, you can have people do snatch and clean and jerk together for, you know, year round. There's no reason you couldn't, uh, obviously many successful programs do that. And I think, um, there's no real hard and fast rule on that, but, but initially that would be the, the one the sort of pros and cons of that thinking. Um, in terms of heavy days and light days, those are essential because you, if you don't have heavy days and light days, if every single training stimulus, every single day is the same, you won't, you you know, you technically can't have a, a large day if there is no small day. It's yeah. just a day, right? And you would violate the principle of fatigue management if you didn't have reductions in training load at some point. Uh, you just have monotonous training, a, cons- a consistent load across the board. Uh, and so you'd, you'd have difficulty recovering and difficulty making adaptations if you're overstressing and, and 
you know, just basically exhausting your resources to execute the training volume. The, the principle of, you know, the, the, the concept of maximum recoverable volume, maximum adaptive volume, and then minimum effective volume. Uh, so you basically have the minimum amount of work you need to do to make progress. The most, that would be minimum effective volume. The most work you can physically do before you die. That would be maximum recoverable volume. And then the maximum effective volume, which is the most work you can do and get results still and, and make adaptations and positive you know, progress before doing more results in a negative, right? Or basically before doing more is not productive. And and those those things have to be applied to the training microcycle, macrocycle, the whole thing, right? Um, you're building from the overload stress is going to build from the lowest effective volume towards the maximum recoverable volume. The less time you spend in each, each, sorry, that's the less time. If you spend too much time in, in either side of that coin where you're always at the highest amount of work you can possibly do, there's not going to be any overload. You're not going to actually progressively increase anything. If you're too low, which is probably more rare, if you're too low on that scale, there's no increased stimulus. So you're going to end up in a bad place. In terms of um, the total amount of volume you're hitting, in, in terms of like the total list, do you go by like that sort of Russian model of like here's our monthly volume and then split into like, you know, here it is over the course of the four weeks or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a month. It could be spending how long you're saying. I've, but do you, do you, I, I'm really, go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm really familiar with that structure. You know, I, as a powerlifter, I trained with Boris Shako, who used Medvedev's whole system. He, he basically used that same training system for powerlifting. And, and it's a very effective training model. You basically have research that was done that gives us an indication as to how much training volume is necessary for a lifter of a certain qualification. So if you have a 300 kilo total and you're 94 kilo body weight, how much training volume should you do in a month? And then, you know, it's a great system. It works very well. Um, it's not exactly how I would use, how I've done things. I've written programs in that system before and had success, but I prefer to, for most lifters, I prefer to create a structure that's focused more on the, we just, we pick what our overload is going to be and we establish that and then work from there. Um, the, the variety of training loads is going to be different. We don't do as many, um, it's much more unidirectional, right? So the loading is more unidirectional. The phasic structure is much more pronounced. So there's distinct phases that are much more unidirectional in their loading. This is strength. This is technical coordination block. This is a peaking phase. Um, the reason I do that is because a lot of lifters I have are coming with a background that's very different. Maybe they have a, a ton of training under them, but they have you know terrible technique, or they come in they're incredibly strong, but they have uh, or they have you know great technique, but they're super weak, and so it's much faster to address those issues with a more unidirectional loading. 
Oh, you still there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I, yeah, I didn't know if you just got out there. Or did you just I'm, I'm probably just rambling now. No, no, no. It's re- no, no this is real. This is the shit I want to talk about. I, I find this fascinating because I, I go through periods of time where I really get into white lips and I'm reading the text. Um, and it's just honestly, it's very interesting. And in terms, in terms, maybe then just slightly taking a, a back step from programming, getting into the technical model. Like, it, so I'm a, let's say I'm a complete beginner and I go into Juggernaut and you know I get scared by Chad and I'm like, oh, he's big and scary, and I'll just go, I think I'll go for that guy. He looks nicer. And I'm like, I'm a beginner, and then you're like, oh, let's do, let's do the Olympic this water day. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, how do you teach technically the, the Olympics from a technical standpoint? Do you go top down? Do you go bottom up? Or what way do you like to do it? I mean, I've done both. You know, if somebody came to me and they had done a snatch before, uh, if someone comes to me and they're like, I want to learn a snatch, I'd give them the bar or the stick and I'd say, show me the snatch. Yeah, if they've done it or know of it, then yeah. we just start there. We just start with what you've done. Like, okay, show me, show me what you do, and then you kind of just uh, you know put them in different positions and adjust them and just watch them and kind of help them and just show them how to move, right? Because that's really as fast a way to teach it as any other way. Um, this is one thing that I think is kind of stemmed from, it's from, and I even do it in you know seminars and stuff, it stems from the, the aspect, like we talked about in the beginning, of lost people getting into this. People try to create like a proprietary system or create something that allows them to differentiate themselves from a business standpoint. I teach the lifts this way or I teach the lifts that way or I call them this or call them that. This is my proprietary system of training or of coaching the lifts. And then they, they push that on everybody. So, you know, progressions in weightlifting technique, they didn't exist before. I don't remember anyone having like a progression, like a special model of like, hey, here's here's what we do here and here and here. Here's this like five steps you do to get a snatch down. When I started lifting, you just went in and like your coach was assumed you knew what a snatch was. Obviously, you're in weightlifting gym, and you just start doing it. And I, I was a terrible lifter because the, like a lot of the the aspect. Teaching and models is kind of stems, I think, from the competitive nature of business. So, you know, I've taught people from the top down, from the bottom up. I've taught people from, you know, just just take a bar and let's start doing it and showing them. Um, With a kid, you know, with a kid, the best way to teach them is going to be from from showing them. You know, maybe you break the movement down and start from the hip or from the hang or from the knee or something or put on blocks. You know, and those those are ways to just kind of simplify it so they don't have to do as much. Um, but from a standardized, you know, this is the best way to teach things, then, you know, it's tough to say. I mean, I don't think there's really any huge – I don't think you're going to find a bigger impact, you know, this way or that way. Yeah. I will say that generally it's easier to start – people that, that come into this sport later in life from the top, you know, starting with the overhead squat, starting there, because they're generally less flexible, you know, and they're going to come in with some mobility issues or physical, you know, limitations, and they can generally get into the top positions better. Uh, you know, some people just can't get into a start position. They're going to struggle with that, and, and you know. So it's it, you might get a little more benefit from somebody starting from the beginning or starting the beginning lift from the top and then working their way down to the floor. Um, but I've seen both ways taught effectively. 
Okay, Max, you have to promise you now. You won't you won't get super pissed off with the next question. Alright. <laughs> so uh, I know you're you you uh, listened to one or two of the Joke Joke Life podcasts and uh, you got pretty riled up when the question of uh, Louis Sims's uh, Olympic uh, Olympic strength manual came up. So yeah. uh, uh, I have I've I've read the manual. I've actually visited Westside Louis and he's you know, he's uh-huh. like anything, like he, he's got some great things and then he's fucking mad and other things as well, like but uh yeah. Yeah, just your maybe your take on the, the Olympic strep manual and, and you know what Louis also has to say about about way this. So the manual he put out, I don't know if it's the same book. Has he written another one? No, no, he only has he only has the one. In terms of Olympic lips anyway. Yeah. So I read that book. I was given a copy. I read it. And um you know, this is what I would take away from from an objective standpoint, just being critical of the book and the manual and it as a as a what it is. It it doesn't really it does from a theoretical standpoint, if somebody said, "Hey, here's my here's my thoughts on uh, you know, applying this method of training to weightlifting. It's it's fine. Saying okay, here's an idea. Here's here's do this, do that. I have these thoughts. If it was, it's kind of like concept art for a car. Does that make sense? Yeah. You ever see like a like a sports car? They you know the like concept ones. They they make one of them and they bring it to an auto show and it's you know, but you, you can't drive them and they don't really work and they're just kind of like models, and they're kind of neat to look at. So from his perspective, from that book being basically, yeah, that's kind of a neat thought. I, I like that's cool. This is this guy's ideas. From a practical standpoint, it's a great book because model he's suggesting people use hasn't even been proven in powerlifting. And I know that I know that everybody there has you know this and that and world records and this and that, but the reality is that they really haven't proven themselves effective across all sports from that gym. I'm not talking about other people doing Westside because you need to take Westside itself, the gym itself. Louis Simmons needs to coach people in both powerlifting in all federations, weightlifting across the world for him to be able to say the system is successful and can produce those results. You know, they compete in a couple of federations where they get, they basically get handed gifts left and right. I mean, it's not it doesn't take any doesn't take anyone to realize they're not squatting well or you know, there's just so much crap that goes on. We know that. So so you can't take the system that doesn't work and apply it to something and then say this is how it should be done and not expect a lot of backlash. I mean, the book itself it had I remember the book having like like twenty or thirty. 30 pages of charts for band tension for box squats. Now, while that sounds, that's all fantastic, that's a huge amount of information and, and energy that goes into an exercise that, even at best, is an accessory movement to weightlifting. And and it's just not, you know what I mean? Like, there's so much energy and so much shit in the book that goes into stuff that just doesn't do, it's just not going to work. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, this has been tried. Like, there's, there's a reason why nobody in the world does box squats with bands. Nobody cleans with bands or chains. Nobody does deadlift pulls pulls with bands. Nobody does this stuff. There's a reason why. 
And it's not because they they don't know about it. It's it's obvious, you know. It's like it's like it's not for one. It's not necessary, and if it's not necessary, why bother? Because the results are not going to be any better. You know what I mean? Russia, China have created basically assembly lines for world class weightlifters. There's they don't use these things. You know, it's not a it's not a mystery how these people are trained. Um, I just think the book itself is is you know it's just I don't know it's just not good. <laughs> I mean, it you know it's it's bizarre to me too because you have to imagine. Think about this. You're going to buy a book written by a guy who claims that he knows how to coach weightlifters and he knows and people and everyone else backs it up too, you know. I remember Brandon Lilly making some posts like everyone's going to be disappointed if he started coaching weightlifters because they're all going to, you know, he's going to beat everybody. If if I if you told me, hey, I I can guess the lottery numbers every time and I'm always right, I would say, why haven't you guessed them then? Why are you not a millionaire? It's yeah, like yeah. All, all he's doing is walks around telling everybody how he, you know, he he can do it, but do it would do it. You know why wouldn't you? I mean, if, why wouldn't you make Olympic champions? You know that that's the reality. Is like if if you could do it, you would, because everyone else is trying to do it, and they're having a hard time. I think what he also I think what he also goes back with is that no one goes to him like not nobody not, no Olympic difficult to go to him. but I, I know what you're saying yeah that's like saying I'm not going to go buy a lottery ticket because no one's giving me a ride to the, the gas station yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. it's a weak it's a weak excuse I remember him saying once too that you know uh, no one's come out there you know but, but I mean it's like you you just don't make bold statements then I mean if you can't back it up with with some actual Thing you know, and I, I don't know Louis, so I'm not I don't, I'm not saying it personally against Louis because I don't I don't know him. Yeah. But you know, I mean, for all I know, he could be a great guy. I mean, it's more a matter of the information and the statements being made. You know, yeah. uh, no one's walking around saying like, you know, if someone was like, if someone was to say, hey, I can coach multiply powerlifter to squat, you know, fifteen hundred pounds, six inches high, hey. You know, and they never did it. Wouldn't Louis Simmons want to come out and say like, "That's my thing. I can do that." Like, why? You, well, you know what I mean? If you if you flip the tables around, it would be very odd, right? Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's, that's, that's just a... to be like, we know how to we know how to coach multiply powerlifting. You say, "Well, you've never done it." Yeah. Well, I don't need to do it. No, no one good enough's ever come to me. No one's ever come to my gym with a suit. Yeah. No, that's that's a good that's a good perspective and a good good way to, to look at it too. Uh, yeah. Um. There was what was I gonna I was gonna ask you there now just a second. I just slipped, slipped my man. So it did. Uh, Max, in terms of uh, yeah, resources, like what would be your top resources for Olympic lifting? Is there any you know classic books that you always refer back to all the time? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I would I would say my book's pretty good, but uh, which 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 we'll we'll, we'll talk shameless. about. So the weightlifting triad, we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah, shameless plug. No, uh, you know the best the best books. Obviously, the old those old Soviet texts are really. Those are really good because they offer a, you know, those books are good because they offer a, a glimpse into what a structure and a system is. Um, whether or not to take it as gospel and to use it entirely, it, it's a good introduction to, hey, here's a complete system of training, you know, that, that that's really excellent. Um, other books that are fantastic for, for weightlifting are not going to be directly about weightlifting, but... Uh, 
Isserin, Dr. Isserin, uh, block periodization. Yeah, Dr. Isserin. Yeah. Second block periodization. Um, Bonderchuk is very difficult to read, but Bonderchuk transfer training. Oh, it's like watching like watching fucking paint dry, so it is. Yeah, but but Bonderchuk's concepts, Bonderchuk's ideas are, are excellent. Bonderchuk is an amazing coach, um, and, and I think his stuff is very applicable to weightlifting. Um, then you know, from other perspectives, um, like training wise, like I mean, Super Training is not a good book. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing resource, but it's like you're not gonna read Super Training and get anything out of it that's gonna change your mind or change it. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever the, read um, Baroga's book, Weightlifting Fitness for All Sports? Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you do, do you actually have a hard version of that? Uh, I don't know if I did. I think maybe. James Smith may have when I live with him. Yeah, you know, because I, I have a digital version. And yeah. Like, that book is so hard to get. Like, it's on, like, some mad websites, but they're all, like, 1,000 euro. I'm like, no, okay, I'll just print off my digital one. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, there's, like, a ton of books that are great. And, and really what I would say, the other the other side of the coin here is, um, well, well, Mike Isretel's book uh, on Juggernaut, The Scientific Principles of Training, are, are huge. That's a, that's a fantastic book because the information is distilled so well for people to understand. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love that book. book. I, read, I, read, I read that book over the cover two, two summers ago. Yeah. I loved it, yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Fantastic resource that and, uh, anything like Greg Knuckles writes is really, is really good. Oh, yeah. I, not so much for weightlifting, but the very, very distilled information can, can help you understand a lot of stuff. Um, but then the other side, you know, it's like the, the weightlifting books that come out, um, things like the way of things encyclopedia and Greg Everett's book are, they're great if you're like kind of just jumping into the sport and you want like a good all around, uh, like, Oh, like, you know, what's weightlifting? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't, uh, I don't have Greg's third edition, but apparently the third edition is phenomenal. Like you really like put out all the stuff. Okay. I, I have the second one. But apparently, like the third edition is like it's it's a completely different book. Like he went into way oh, more okay. he went into way more detail. Yeah. But uh, I have that uh, I have Dresden's book too, the encyclopedia. That's yeah. I, I find that a good read. Yeah, they're they're good books. You know, they're not like they're not the kind of book you're gonna grab and become a you know glean a ton from. But yeah. you're gonna look at it and be like oh, there's a, there's a lot of really quality, just quality basic information and and some more advanced information and stuff. Um, the, the biggest thing that you're going to, the biggest place resource book wise is going to come from, you know, that, that those, I think the Isran books are fantastic. Yeah. I think the Bondarchuk stuff is great. The Russian stuff is fantastic. All the old Russian literature stuff. Um, also I've read, uh, Boris Shako's book. Uh, he has a book on powerlifting that was translated to English is a great, a great example. Is, is, is of, that, is that out in English? Yeah, I have a copy in English. I don't know if it's out in English, but I have a digital copy. Wow. Um, but uh, who did did Mike? Yeah, I think did, it is. Did, did Mike do the translation is. on that? Mike, is it so? Uh, I don't know if he did. I don't think I don't know if he did. He may have. Um, um what you call? Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely love it. Ishran's book and uh, Bonnetrock stuff is good, but uh, I um I I know Chad is familiar with with Mike Tashir. I'm sure you are too, are you, Mike Tashir? Yeah. Well, Mike actually it was funny because there's a guy called Derek Evely who's probably one of the best English-speaking 
uh, individuals in terms of understanding Bonnerchuk's work because Bonnerchuk right. actually lived with Derek in Canada. So Derek is oh, wow. a former Trolls coach. He, he trained Dylan Armstrong and, and Solskja Hitchkin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so and Derek would be very good friends with like the Altus crew with Dan Faf, or with Dan Faf and very good friends with Stu McMillan. And I met uh, Derek, and I've had Derek on the podcast, but basically Mike Tashir was over in Ireland last month doing the European Paralympic Conference with Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, C.L. McLean and um, Bryce Lewis and uh, I, I got to meet Mike uh, I've had, and I've had Mike on the podcast twice but uh, yeah. he basically said that when he heard my interview with Derek it got his wheels turning in terms of applying the Bonnetruck model to powerlifting and he's been, yeah. he, he ran the, moment, the Project Momentum there and doing it so it was just very interesting to hear you say you feel that the Bonnetruck model has a lot of carryovers and then because Mike ran a two now with the, with the powerlifting and this idea of not having a planned peak would like so doing the bond trip model of hitting a certain amount of sessions in a period of time and then the, the whole yeah I think cycle. that's one thing that that concept in of itself and uh, people may not be familiar but basically bond trek you know there, there's three different models of in in which way a, a person adapts to something yeah um yeah well, some people positive are, neutral negative yeah right and so his training structure was about through experience, through through trial and error, basically finding the number of workloads, the number of training sessions that that mm-hmm. have to occur for that adaptation to happen. Yeah, yeah. Right. So so you kind of have this like that concept is very interesting to me because you'll you'll I've kept track of lifters training and you see that kind of these patterns come out and you start to see it and from experience as a coach. You, you know, you can look and say, oh, I can tell what shape this person's in. But when you actually look at that, it's like you can establish a much better training protocol. If you can say, hey, X number of training sessions is going to result in this in this positive outcome at the end here. Um, how do we, you know, what what are those? What do we plan for? How do we, how do we structure this and how do we control it? Um, I, I think it's a really interesting approach, whereas a lot of people, it seems like, the structures of things are much more arbitrary. Yeah. You know, yeah, just no, kind it's, of this uh, many weeks of loading and then you go. Yeah. I, I found it fascinating too. when I first learned it from Derek and, uh, yeah, it's a very, very interesting concept because he, he said with, uh, with, uh, Sophie, Sophie Hitchkin, the thrower Derek now that for her, it was between 33 and 36 sessions. And she always, every time, boom, every, every time she just peaked at that. So he noticed that right, and he knows right. other trends and, Stu, Stu McMillan actually played around with it a little bit with, with Dwayne Chambers back in 2013 after the, oh, yeah. after the 2012 games. Because Stu always says like the, the first year after the Olympics is the great year to all these mad experiments. And he just said that he hasn't had the balls to try it again with anyone else. But like, you know, because the idea obviously with Bonnetruck is to like train your competition exercise on a very regular basis. Um, yeah. But it's all like Stu was kind of like, well, how can you do that with a sprinter? Because obviously, you know, the load in the CNS for it. Whereas maybe, you know, throwing a shot would, you know, it's kind of like he was like, how can I apply this? And yeah. so Mike, Mike T was sort of the same with, uh, with powerless, you know, like to, to fit them in every day. And obviously we know that with deadlifts and like, you know, how do you do what do you do? And so it was very interesting to get his take on it too. And just off the back of Mike to share, like, uh, and I, I know you guys had a video on it lately and I, I didn't watch it. So I, I don't know the answer to this, but what's your take on using RPE for weightlifting? So, you know, it, it just does not, it, it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same application because in weightlifting, imagine you throw a, a ball, 
mm. and you throw it as hard as you possibly can. We'll call it a 10 RPE. Now throw it a nine. I mean, it's like where where on the scale is that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's kind of all out or nothing, right? Because because weightlifting is much more like throwing. It's very difficult to rate how. It's very difficult to gauge how that that effort, right? You're always trying to apply the maximum amount of force at certain points, right? Just as you wouldn't powerlifting, you're you're just applying for enough force to move the object. You may be pushing as hard as possible, but it's much there's not as much consistency in repetitions, right? Also, in weightlifting, it's it's rare to do you know it's like what you. You're, you're better off just changing the exercise. Like in throwing, you change the, the implement to be heavier or lighter, right? But you're not doing five reps of throws. You do one throw at a time, right? Uh, you know, you, you throw it, then you pick another one up, then you throw that. It's always a single effort. So in weightlifting, it'd be very similar where, you know, the RPE, so you're not going to apply. You just would change the implement. You use a lighter barbell and do power snatches or power cleans or something or no hook, no feet or whatever variation to make it more difficult or you increase the, the intensity and use a basically a heavier implement like and do squats and deadlifts or pulls um, make sense. I think, I think the application of RP just doesn't really lend itself well to weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Just uh, actually the question I meant to ask earlier on when I, I forgot was in terms yeah. of, because um, this was actually off the back of, of, West Side sort of discussion because this is the, the, the this was the question I was thinking of. Uh, why why do you think or yeah basically why do you think why do you think American weightlifting is so poorly represented on the world stage? And then off the back of that, do do you see in the future American weightlifting becoming a more prominent power? Uh, I think it's poorly represented because we didn't put a lot of effort into it as a country. You know, really up until the last five years, seven years. Um, it weightlifting has been very, it's just been very under selected by, I mean, it's like, there's just not much going into it. No, you know, CrossFit really revived it a hundred percent. Um, and so that's bringing out new talent. There's some very young, talented kids that will start to do really well. Um, how well they do is still up for, you know, we have to see, uh, the reason we haven't done well across the world is that we, you know, one of the largest factors is that we just we don't participate in it at the same level. We don't have as many people at young age. We don't have the level of coaching they have. We don't have the level of expertise or knowledge that they have. Um, that stuff's all changing. The tide is definitely turning. Uh, the other aspect is corruption and drug use is essentially, you know, was essentially non-existent here until CrossFit. Uh, there's been more drug positives in the U.S. now than. In the last couple of years, there is, was. Is the last everyone, but like, are, are, are all the top lifters not on it? So, what's the big fucking deal? Like, I, I, I get this thing like that there's American lifters and they're so anti drug, but it's just like everyone's on the fucking drugs. You know, I, I think, I think not, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think everyone is. I think in the rest of the world, it's, it's, it has to be assumed if 50 people are failing drug tests at the Olympics, then, then all the top countries are. Yeah, well, sorry. This, 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 this is what I mean. It's just because with with the with the, what happened to Illy Ilium, like it's just like, and then the other thing was too was like, okay, like it's like Illy, his fucking blood was back back checked because of new technology or whatever, and then it's all like, oh, see, he was on drugs. It's like, yeah, but the guy who finished tenth was probably on drugs as well. Like, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? It's like where do where do you draw the line, right? Uh, you have you have a bunch of people. I think the ninety fours and the twenty twelve, like eleventh place or ninth place guy has is the gold medalist now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's just a bizarre. It's a very bizarre world. Um, I, I think that people are. Yeah, it's sort of a right and wrong. It's an ethical issue, right? It's a question of is it right and wrong. If it's wrong to do them, then it doesn't matter how people are on drugs. It doesn't matter if every single person is corrupt. If yeah, it's wrong, yeah, yeah. if no, it's against right, the yeah. rules, it's easy to turn around and be like, "Oh, everyone's doing it, so it's fair." But whatever. I mean, that that's that's a conversation for a whole other time. But I, I do know that that is definitely one of the reasons why we've struggled, but certainly has never had the impact on our own ability to get better. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, I do not believe that because everyone else is on drugs that the rest of the world that we can't improve. Um, we can't move up the rankings and, and place better and perform better, you know? Do, do you, uh, do you, uh, what's your thought on the, the sort of, it's not an argument, but the sort of point that some weightlifting coaches say, well, another reason America doesn't do well is because all of our good Olympic weightlifters go to the other sports like football or whatever. Uh, I mean, that's certainly true. Uh, you know, the, 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 the athletes that play in the NFL are on a completely different level. Um, I mean, there are some extraordinarily talented human beings that play in a lot of other sports, um, but we're probably never going to get them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's always going to be more money in those sports, and, and you're not going to pull those guys away. If you're, if you're a six-foot-tall, 250-pound or 245-pound guy, um, you know, and you can run, you know, sub four, four forty. Like you're, you're not playing. You're not going to be a weightlifter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a NFL starting running back, like you could probably be an incredible weightlifter if you had started when you were a kid. But you're not. You're not going to get in the weightlifting and make, you know, maybe make fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, you know, until the second you get hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the NFL is just offers so much more, and, and other sports too. I mean, but but I think the biggest thing is that uh, you know the those those athletes exist here. They just they're just you know the guy who's too small to be in the NFL, but he's powerful. I mean, a kid like C.J. Cummings is not going to be a, an NFL you know running back or anything because he's too small. Um, he whereas like he's going to be an incredible weightlifter. You know, and then there's people that just might find it and they might prefer that. They don't want to be, uh, you know, in other sports. They might enjoy it. But I, I think it, it – you can't say that this – you know, it doesn't really matter, right? It's like people will say that argument, well, oh, they're all in other sports. But it's like what are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. you got to sit there and complain about it or, or do, are you yeah, try and find somebody it. else? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and just off the back of the drug scene, like I, I always – people always ask me about drugs. I'm like, listen, if it's – if it's banned in the sport, you're a fucking cheater. Simple as that. Uh, if if you're if you're someone who doesn't compete in a sport, and this this is how I always preface drugs well, uh, like anabolics like that. It's like if you're someone who doesn't compete and you're just someone looking to get as big and fucking strong as possible, and you've milked all your natural gains and you're over 25, so your endocrinology is fucking like stopped growing. You're not playing around with that shit. You know when you get like get these fucking 70 year olds who are all like like your your fucking organs are still growing. What the fuck are you doing? Uh, and, and you're just someone who wants to get as big and strong as possible. You don't compete. 
and you actually know what you're doing so that automatically rules out 99.9% of the users and you, like you actually know what you're doing you know endocrinology or you're working with a good quality doctor and you actually do proper things like down cycles and detox your liver and you actually get fucking pharmaceutical grade A stuff you don't just order it off the internet from fucking the Netherlands and it's fucking horse urine or something like that uh, then I'm like fucking knock yourself out load the fuck up as long as you keep that to yourself but if you're in a sport where it's fucking listen don't be taking it and then people go well everyone else is doing it. it's like yeah whatever makes you sleep at night you're still cheating yeah I mean it's, a, it's an interesting you know I think that a lot of this comes back down to it comes back down to like you know my first coach and a lot of stuff where you know it's it's kind of like the the idea of being grateful for everything and tired of nothing is like you're not looking for any external validation for your choices mm. and and what you do is just you look at the things you can work on and you work as hard as you can on those things yeah, focus yeah. on the task in front of you and and see where that takes you you know we talk a lot about process orientation versus goal orientation meaning you know, focus on the process of attaining uh, better results and the process of training and let that dictate everything else. Um, it's the same with the drug thing. It's like, you know, it's easy to just point it out and, and make it this kind of catch-all excuse or make it this justification. But the reality is like, you know, how many people that are, that are you know, you see this all the time on the internet, the, the, the Instagram superstars that are, they're, they're not members of, you know, they can't compete in weightlifting or they don't compete in weightlifting, they don't compete in powerlifting. They lift in their, you know, in their their grandma's basement, you know, doing the the proverbial, like, you know, the dad spotting them lifting and just all the shit, right? Everyone's, everyone's a superhero at home on the internet, big lifts this way and that way. And then when it comes down to it, like, you know, you're, you're not even a great lifter. You're not even doing anything. Like you haven't, you have no experience in competition. Um, you know what I mean? There's just so much of this. Like you could focus on all these other aspects of the sport and become really good at those things. Like you know, take a bunch of drugs. Don't. When we saw this with uh, Pat Mendez, right? Like, and John Bros is a great friend of mine. Like, but it's like you know, the reality is like the kid didn't compete a lot, and and it showed when he came when it came time to compete. Yeah. It was soft, you know. Yeah. Um, and I like Pat too. I, I'm not I'm trying to insult him. Or I, know, I know, I, I, I you know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it, I think everyone has to really take an objective look at themselves and say, okay, that that didn't work. I mean, you know, he, he was super strong. There was no doubt about his physical abilities. He was talented, but you didn't you didn't do ten years of competitions that turned you into a vicious competitor. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very true. And, and so it's like, it's like. That's an example where like drugs or no drugs or this or that. It's like, irrelevant because you look at someone like Ilya Illin, uh, was it twenty fifteen when he went up for that he missed that cleaning jerk and went for the win on the third? I mean, that's a competitor. That's a guy who who there was doesn't matter how much weight's on the bar, none of those things matter. Just he was gonna win. Um, so I think that's kind of one of those those things, yeah, you can focus on the stuff that you can focus on. Yeah. Just do that. Speaking about competitors, remember your man Steiner, the German fella. That was, yeah, that was yeah. fucking unbelievable. I, lo- I love that right. story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the drugs, obviously, sure. Drugs make you super strong and all that. But I mean, the, those kind of victory that that's sport right there is yeah. somebody coming from from behind to to win in a, a hail mary attempt 
you know, like that's the kind of thing that, that requires something that you can't just yeah, fabricate yeah, out of you nowhere. Can't, you, can't in, you can't inject that shit into you, so you can't. Yeah. Uh, something I just really want to get your thoughts on is um, Olympic lifting for um, non-Olympic lifting athletes. So, you know, using the Olympic lifts to develop uh, explosive strength in, um, in, a, in athletes from other sports. And it's interesting because obviously you, you're friends with Jane Smith, you know Jane Smith, and Suppose, yeah. You know, and I, I know Chad. I, I, I know Chad has utilized a bit of Olympic lifting with his athletes as well. Um, so like a lot of with his, his team-based athletes. Um, but basically, so what are your thoughts on utilizing the Olympic lift variations for non-Olympic weightlifting athletes? Or I mean, they're, they're fine. It, it's you know, from a practicality standpoint, it's probably hard to implement them with really excellent technique. Would, uh, would you would you, you pro, know, would, would, group, you pro them, would you use them with with, with uh, non strength based athletes? Well, you know, non Olympic. Uh, probably not. I mean, maybe maybe like football, I would do some power cleans or something. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I probably would avoid snatching. Um, although snatching might be maybe maybe some snatch. I mean, again, a lot of that is like it's all general for them, so it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, the only reason I would do it is that it's a little bit more dynamic and. It's a little more exciting, and they might they might train harder because they're doing you know something that's more enjoyable. Um, it's yeah, it's it's from a standpoint of like building explosiveness and these things. It's probably no better than jumping or or med ball throws or bounding and stuff like that. Yeah. You just uh, you just said, you just answered my follow up question, and like so you're you're not one of these dogmatic coaches that is like you have to do Olympic lifts to develop explosiveness. No, like, no, nah, as many you meet, have to train, yeah, many you have roads to train properly there. for the sport, yeah. whatever sport it is. Because you always get some people come back and they'll go, oh, you medicine ball throws and jumping on boxes and sprinting, like they're all towards the speed strength end of the force velocity curve, whereas Olympic is sort of strength speed end. And it's just like mm, strength speed and speed strength are just velocities. Like we can just move something at that speed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like I was just giving examples, but I mean, basically, you're not there's the transference from the clean to the football field is basically zero. Yeah, yeah. It's general in nature. Like if you clean 300 pounds or you clean 350 pounds, it's not going to have an impact on how many touchdowns you make. Very true. Very, very true. No, <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it's, it, it's it's always good yeah. to hear like someone who of your background who is Olympic Olympic weightlifting coach saying that nah, I probably wouldn't utilize them with yeah. uh, with team based athletes. And if I was, you know, I'd, I'd use them in limit capacity and I'd only use like derivatives variations. So because I I yeah. used to be a big problem because like uh, of Olympic variations. Um, like my sort of sort of journey in terms of Olympic variations at least was like I came from I worked with Mike Boyles and we always used hand clean so they were always initially uh-huh. they were always initially in my programs and you know kind of with the belief that all oh, develops power and like power is a fucking catch all term as well but some need subcategories of power then and then uh, right what what I started to realize was mm, you know you know that. Like and just just so you know, like the athletes who uh, do the hand cleans of boils, like I know there's some videos out there, but in the, in the general part, like they all, all do a fairly decent job at an Olympic lift variation for non-Olympic weightlifting athletes. Um, but my sort of thought process is that, you know, I always come back with there's a difference between learning something and mastering something, and my thought is that like a lot of the athletes, and this isn't just with boils, this is this is athletes I see who aren't Olympic athletes everywhere I've gone, and they all use Olympics. It's like they always jump too early, they jump forward, the bar leaves their, yeah. hips, their bar leaves their hips too soon, they never really get the full extension or what they're really looking after from the lift, and uh, 
So my, my thing was the athletes have learned a proficient variation of, uh, of the Olympic lift, but they haven't mastered it. And I always use the analogy of like, I can't play the guitar, but like if you said to me, uh, Max, Robbie, you need to know, you need to be able to play me a song on a guitar in 28 days time. I'd be able to do it. Like I'd be able to learn, yeah. I'd be able to learn a song and be proficient at it. But would I have mastered the guitar and be Jimmy Page or, or Jack White? I didn't know. So my, my kind of counter argument is that why, why would I spend time trying to master something, that, as you said, that has fairly little transfer to their sports specific yeah. skill when I could be utilizing other methods or putting that, that time in, in somewhere else. So I suppose it's a time thing too. Like I also, if I, if I knew I had an athlete for like a, at least a one year period and definitely up to like a four year period, I probably would te- like yourself teach some variations like some power cleans or hang cleans or hang snatch. But if I, a lot of my athletes, I only have for like eight weeks of an off season. Like I'm not, I'm not doing Olympic variations with someone who doesn't yeah. do them eight weeks. You know, it all comes down to specificity, right? Yeah. If, it, if it doesn't, it's not going to transfer if it's not specific, if it doesn't mimic the sport movements. So, yeah. 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 Well, one thing I would say about tra- Derek Evely said very good things to me. He, he says there is a difference between specificity and transfer, and people get them confused in that. People automatically right. think that if it doesn't look like something in the sport, then it won't transfer. But then there's other parts of to specifically like there's an energy system component there's a velocity component there's a force component. sure sure it's not just the movement though usually is the main component that will transfer over but yeah no i definitely definitely agree with what you're saying there all right here listen we're, we'll wrap it up here and before we go though speak to us about this book of yours so the weightlifting trial uh, yeah. you know what what why did why the why did you feel that you, the need to write it uh, i remember who did i ask so I asked someone that one time, why did you write this book? I think it was Franz Bosch, and he goes, because it was on my mind for so long, and it's just like I had to write it. Just like, you know, uh, Chad, I have to give Chad a lot of credit for, for pushing me to write it. Um, the book is the book is basically how, it's, it's sort of like, how, how do you look at all these exercises and and, and determine what's, what's appropriate for somebody? And the book really applies, the book is going to apply to people who are much much more beginner in stature. There's not really once you've developed the technique, it's not really necessary. I mean, the book is a good book still, but it really focuses more on the beginner and the the process of you know what what exercises do I select based on what is actually going on with my lifting. What what do I need to change about my lifting? And how do I apply the right exercises? When I started lifting, the the and it still is the case is people don't really know exactly why they do certain exercises. What does this exercise do? What are the adaptations that are going to be be gained from this? How does this exercise actually change or affect my technique? Um, and, and you know, so what I did is you know I talked to I always have a sort of basic structure in my mind as to how the the technique of the lift the different components of that interplay, not just the, the technique. A lot of times we fixate on what positions the body needs to be in, what, what does the technique need to look like, rather than looking at it from a compartmental standpoint of, you know, what, what is wrong, what different components make up the lift, and then how do we address those components? Clearly there's technique involved, but what are the more simple general components we're actually trying to affect? Uh, Biggest reason for writing it was, you know, getting something on paper to, to say, hey, this is the this is how I select things, this is how to do it. It's been a really cool for me, a bit cool experience to write something because I never really did that before. I never really thought I would do something like that. 
Uh, and it's, it's, I'm kind of glad I did because it gave me a chance like to see, okay, this is how I think about stuff. And I, I rethought about a lot of stuff as I wrote it. And, and now I'm kind of excited to try and write some more things. Uh, cause it's just kind of a, it's a neat experience, you know, uh, writing something and actually starting from nothing and putting your thoughts down and, and saying, Hey, here's, here's what I think about this and, and how I apply stuff to weightlifting. So we've chatted with you, Smith. Thanks. You still there? Yeah. No, I'm well, I, oh, no, I say, I say, we we have Chad Wesley Smith to thank for this book. Oh yeah, yeah, basically, snatch, snatch Wesley Smith. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, it's you're right though because I suppose like a lot of coaches listening to this, probably similar to myself, we're probably about four or five un, unfinished books that we started like fucking ten years ago. Yeah. But even 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 if the book never sees the light of day, I still think it's a very worthwhile process because what it does, and you yeah. push on this. It really starts. It really helps you to develop a deeper understanding of why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe in as a coach. Yes. So it really starts to consolidate your knowledge and to be able to rationalize and even defend to yourself why you do. And then even like what's even what even happened when I started writing about stuff was that I actually started getting rid of some things. I was like, why is that my program? I have no justification for that whatsoever. Like, and it's just right. like, yeah, exactly. and then you're just like. I was actually at a seminar last weekend with a guy called Jason Glass, and he had a good analogy. He says, if you've got three buckets, you got bucket one, two, three, and he's like, bucket one is the shit you can't do without. Like, that is the stuff you know that, that needs to be in your programs. And he's like, bucket two is kind of like, eh, you know, it's, it's, it, might, it might have full justification, but it's kind of like, can it give us a benefit? Yes. Will it harm us? No. Probably worth doing in some sort of tertiary manner. And then he's like, bucket three is all the shit that just doesn't need to be there. She's like, Right. Like, like, and he's just like, he's like, so what you need to do every few, every like, he's like every quarter or, or you know every six months or once a year is sit down and go through your program and take out your three buckets and say, is there anything in bucket one and two that really should be in bucket three, particularly, right, right. you know, it has it moved down like in, in the pecking order. And he says sometimes maybe something in bucket three gets brought to bucket two, but more than likely it's just like taking the shit out. You know, one thing I've done as a drill, as an exercise as a coach, is, is writing programs with the intent to have them fail, which is kind of a strange idea, but I don't yeah, actually give yeah. them to people, but I, I write a program where I say, well, I'm going to write a program that's designed to do, to, to fail at the, at the subject of trying to get it to fail at, and I look at how it comes out, and I say, okay, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a program for somebody who, who needs to improve the, the trajectory of the barbell. Yeah. And so I write a program that, that should fail at that. And then I look at that program and I see how similar it is to programs that I'm giving other people <laughs> and say, Oh, look at what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm actually, I intentionally made this bad and it looks some like, you know, components of this exist in other programs that this is wrong. You know, maybe I should be looking at this differently. Yeah, uh, if that makes sense, it sounds kind of weird, but no, um, no, it's uh, it's funny you say it because when I often give a talk on like uh, more health wellness stuff, I'm always like, right, let's say a client came to you and they're like, here, I want to die a horrendous, horrible, disease-riddled death. What should I do? Right. So we we reverse engineer health. So like, you yeah. start going like, eat the fucking worst diet ever. Make sure right, you right. make sure you take a shift job and your circadian cycles all over the fucking place. Make sure you're completely sleep deprived. Make sure you surround right. yourself with toxins and toxic people. Be born to like really shitty negative parents. Don't exercise whatsoever. <laughs> you know, it's just like uh, if possible. So you're describing my life right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's possible get in, get in an airplane like every day and cross multiple time zones and be in radiation all day it's, long. It's definitely me. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is definitely me. Yeah. Uh, no, so uh, no, reverse engineering is, is definitely a worthwhile yeah. process. So, uh, Max, just finally, just wrapping up here, uh, in terms of the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life and career, what would you say would be like the top three lessons? And if you have more than oh. three, it's fine. The top three lessons. Uh, it doesn't have to be three. It can be more, but usually people keep it to one, two, the, or three. The top, the number one lesson is live by the golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated. Like a piece of shit. Yeah, like a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, the the second I would say is probably uh, spend spend as much time as you can learning every day. Learn, try to learn something every day. And then the third would be pro focus on process orientation. Focus on on improving the process, the little things, and work at those, and, and don't get fixated on the end goal, right? Uh, much like a savings account is built by putting a couple dollars into it every every as frequently as you can, it takes time, and, and yeah, those three things I think are the biggest ones. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. In terms of uh, your likes and hobbies outside of weightlifting and strength sports and fitness in general, like, what, 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 have you got any like? Do you like to read history, movies, documentaries? You know, I love yeah, I love I love history actually. Uh, I love history a lot. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, hobbies and stuff outside of lifting, I don't really have much of anything. I mean, I, I just spend time on lifting stuff and and whatnot. But uh, you know, I've got a. a 11 year old so a lot of that stuff lego building with him and those kind of things but nothing like no no super like hobbies of my own in terms of you know i like to sit there and do this thing or that yeah, thing yeah. see so you're not you're not sitting around knitting jumpers or anything like that no no <laughs> no, no well let's let, let, let's put it let's let's put it this way if 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 max Aiden never got into olympic weightlifting, what do you think he would have what do you think he would have done if, if you could think about it Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I don't really know what I would have done. <laughs> I think. Uh, would have got, got into powerlifting if we get Olympic. I would have. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say almost, but uh, I don't even know. That's a good question. Yeah, no, because I remember. Thank, uh, thank God we don't have to find out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you'd be you'd be in jail right now or something. Uh, yeah, probably. probably uh, in gutter somewhere. So you, you mentioned some of the best resources for the weightlifting. Is there any re other resources you, you mentioned just even outside of the strength sports? And it could be any type of life resources. Or is there any particular book, course, you know, person, mentor, mm. anything at all? It could be a personal development type thing. could be a spiritual thing. could be a, a daily ritual you do, whether it's like you meditate in the morning. Not, you, not really. I mean, I can't think of anything. I mean, a lot of it is just read. Just, just try to pick up something, read. Uh, one thing I think that helps is just to just uh, practice is to is to explore things totally outside of what you do. You know, yeah, if you're yeah. into weightlifting, powerlifting, like pick up something that has nothing to do with that. You know, and read it. Uh, you know, and also get an idea of like what other people are doing. I mean, you know, there's there's a whole world out there that that has tons of amazing things in it, and so don't don't neglect the fact that you're you're given this chance to be alive and you do nothing. But you know, watch hook grip videos all day and and talk shit on Reddit about weightlifters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's a ton of great stuff out there. Just just read something every day. Yeah. Read and write every day if you can. 
I, I know I know we're wrapping up here. This would be a whole question, so maybe we'll get you back on. I'd love you to, to talk about this because I want to get more sort of people who are in our profession to talk more about this. Is this idea of having a and like a lot of people call it bullshit this, but like having a little more balance in your life in terms of like you ever find some days it's just yeah. all, it's just you're just always training, eating, and and and, and studying like our profession, and then it's kind of like you know I haven't seen my friends in like weeks. <laughs> Or, oh, for sure. you know, like just that little more yeah. balance, you know, your family. And then you look back and say, yeah, I'm kind of neglecting a lot of other things in life. For that. I think that when I'm 90, if I live that long, I'll kind of go, mm, No, that, that's a huge one. I think that's that's super important is to make sure that there's there's an even distribution of, you know, Energy. things in your life. You want to balance for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. So, uh, Max, where can people find out more about you? I know Juggernaut's a big resource, uh, just social media. Yeah, you guys can, uh, you can find me at Juggernaut. You can find me, you can email me if you have questions about like any remote coaching or the online program through Juggernaut, uh, max at jtsstrength.com. And also the book, on Instagram. The, the book again is Weightlifting book, Triad. Yep. It's, ava- it's available, it's available ebook and paperback. Yeah, it's right. paperback copy right. too. Max, so, final, final question, uh, you have five uh, places reserved in a restaurant, um, not including yourself, so it's six. Uh, you can invite anyone you want, dead or alive. Who are the five people? Five people? Oh, man. Dead or alive. Uh, dead or alive. Dead or alive. I would probably pick... Uh, J- Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> well, Jesus, Hitler, the Pope, and... Uh, uh, I don't even know. That's a, that's a tough question. I would say uh, probably... Uh, uh, Misha Kokliev for sure. He was a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, Ilya Illin was was a ton of fun. Cool. Um, Goff, Steve Goff for sure because he's insane. Um, uh, who else? Probably Chad. Chad Wesley Smith would be there for sure. He takes up. Sorry, he, he takes up two spots. So that's all gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you got one more. You got one yeah. more. I, I, I'd probably have my wife there because it would be fun to talk about what happened after work with her. Yeah, that's gas. That's gas. Max, this is an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah. And uh, just for the guys listening, we had fucking technical errors at the start, so we were like audio shit four minutes in, and then we tried to get audio still shit, and then it was just like third time we're lucky, and, and uh, we got an hour and a half of goal there. So this is this is absolutely yeah. far, far exceeded what I was uh, hoping in terms of information. Oh, awesome. But, yeah, it was brilliant, and I'd absolutely love to have you back on again. Uh, yep. So, exactly. uh, listen, it was great. Um, I'll do everything I can to plug your book. I'll be getting myself a copy of that book with a question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading that because I have everything from Juggernaut in terms of all Chad's books and and um, and, and Mike Rizzotel stuff, and the quality's always oh, cool. outstanding. So I, I have no doubt it'll be brilliant too. Max, thanks so nice. much. Uh, just hang on the line for just 20 seconds while I wrap up yeah. so guys absolutely brilliant podcast with Max Ada of Juggernaut Training Systems make sure you check them out make sure you check out Juggernaut and subscribe to their YouTube channel by the way your YouTube channel at the moment is fucking amazing it's, yeah it's it, good oh, it's, it's a really it's, does Chad do most of that work is it? Uh, the video editing stuff yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we do it he, we have a guy who does the video stuff. Ah, it's it's so, but, uh, so it's gotten so good Chad, quality. Of. Chad's the mastermind for sure. Yeah, brilliant. So guys, make sure you check that out. It'll be in the show notes. For now, with the podcast, please share, please subscribe, all the stuff I usually ask uh, for you guys to help me out with. And uh, until next time, guys, take care. I'll talk to you all soon, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.